0: your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Professor Donald Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman is a cognitive psychologist and professor emeritus of cognitive sciences at the University of California, Irvine. He studies consciousness, visual perception, and evolutionary psychology using mathematical modeling and psychophysical experiments. He is also the author of many scientific papers and several books, the most recent popular science book being The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Donald and I discussed a variety of topics related to consciousness, the nature of perception, and evolution, including how perception works and what it actually does for us from an evolutionary perspective. We talked about whether our conscious perceptions are likely to be accurate representations of underlying reality. We talked about the interface theory of perception, which likens our conscious perceptions to something like the digital icons displayed on your computer screen. We talked about the nature of language. We discussed psychedelic experiences and other examples of extraordinary conscious experiences that involve unusual perceptual phenomena, and we talked about the nature of reality itself, such as things like whether space and time are fundamental aspects of it, or whether they're artifacts of perception. If you've listened to episodes like the one I had recently with Bernardo Kastrup, or the episode I did with Anil Seth about consciousness, this one will be very interesting to you. It's a great compliment to either of those ones, and I hope you like it. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. I've got an audio version of the episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the normal places. There's a video version available on both Odyssey and YouTube, so check out either or both of those. If you like the show, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. And also check out my substack, mindandmatter.substack.com, where you can see some of my long-form science writing that's inspired by the conversations I have on the podcast. Here, you can sign up for the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter, which gives you updates about the show and links to interesting research and other content that I've been digesting myself. And with that, here's my conversation with Donald Hoffman. Professor Donald Hoffman, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's very, very great pleasure to be here. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your scientific background and research is all about?
1: Well, I'm a professor uh, emeritus now at the University of California, Irvine in cognitive sciences department. I um, taught there since 1983. Uh, And before that, I I got my PhD at MIT in the brain and cognitive science department and also the artificial intelligence lab. My PhD was in computational psychology. And before that, I went to UCLA, got a degree in quantitative psychology at UCLA. So that's sort of my, my um, educational and academic background. So psychology
0: is a really, really big area. And I talk to people fairly often that sort of span, span the full spectrum there, all the way from neuroscientists interested in psychology-type questions to th- therapists and psychiatrists that are treating patients in different ways, all the way to, to people like you. So your PhD is in computational psychology. What exactly is that?
1: Well, it really brought together the computer ideas from artificial intelligence, because I was in the artificial intelligence lab at MIT, mm-hmm. plus the neuroscience psychology side of things from the brain and cognitive science department. It was then called the psychology department. A couple of years after I graduated, they changed their name to what, the current name. So it was really uh, the integration of computational ideas from artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm with the emerging data that we were getting from neuroscience and uh, rigorous theories in you know, cognitive science and psychology, trying to go beyond just paper and pencil uh, stories about the brain and cognition, but really trying to build mathematical and computationally precise models of this. So it was, it was a, a, a great time. I, I had two wonderful advisors, uh, David Marr and Whitman Richards, and David Marr, um, Really pioneered this idea of bringing together artificial intelligence and neuroscience. He was one of the the, the big pioneers of that, especially in the field of vision. And so, I it was a privilege to to get to work with David um, for for a while. He died while I was his graduate student. He, he um, you know, died of leukemia. Uh, but 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 still, the idea was to combine. Um, mathematical models, computational models, together with the neurobiological data that we're trying to understand and the psychological data so interesting so
0: another another thing that's going to permeate the conversation, I think is evolution and thinking about things in terms of in terms of evolution and and what sort of evolutionary logic can help us explain different aspects of human psychology. And so can you speak a little bit about evolutionary psychology for those that aren't aren't that well-versed in it? What is evolutionary psychology and why is it important for any kind of psychologist maybe to have some grounding in evolution?
1: Well, the theory of evolution by natural selection is one of the Pillars of modern science, right? If you think about the big pillars, the big theories that guide modern science, maybe quantum field theory, general relativity, special relativity, of course, and, and, and um, evolution by natural selection. And most of us think about evolution by natural selection as describing is the best scientific theory we have for describing uh, how our bodies evolved, how we got a heart. How why we have two legs as, as opposed to six, and things like that. So we tend to think of it as the theory about how different species get their bodies. But evolutionary psychology points out that it's not just your bodies, but your brains that have evolved. And with the evolution of your brains, also your cognition and your emotions and your thinking ability. These are all, from an evolutionary point of view, um, aspects of the human being that we should try to understand as adaptive um, responses to the environment that that were shaped by natural selection. So it's not just that your heart and your muscles were shaped by natural selection, but your mind and your emotions and your thoughts, your cognitions are shaped. And so this then leads to the idea that we should try to mathematically model using evolutionary game theory, for example, how precisely uh, people have evolved to interact, to compete mentally, how our various cognitive abilities uh, evolved, and in in the case of my work, how our perceptual abilities evolved, how sensory systems evolved. So so it, it takes evolution and says, if we're gonna think about evolution by natural selection as a general theory about how organisms um, gradually, over time, evolve to be the way they are. We need to apply it to the mind as well, and so evolutionary psychology is is a, a fairly robust attempt at at doing that. And my, you know, I'm not saying that evolution by natural selection is the final word on things. In fact, my attitude about scientific theories is that there always works in progress. And you know, if we look back on science 100 years ago, we can always point at the limitations of what they had and and what they should have known, and what they didn't know, and what we now know. And I'm sure the same will be true a century from now, that they'll look at our best theories and our best ideas and and say, well, you know, it was good for the time, but boy, they they should have really been aware that there are these limitations to the theories, and we know a lot more now. So so I'm not putting out evolution by natural selection as the gospel or anything like that. I'm just saying the reason I take it seriously is because right now we have no better theory to work with and so it's our responsibility as scientists to take the best theories that we have on the table right now push them to the limits see what what they entail and also try to break them so try to learn from them useful information in how the mind works and so forth and then try to break them and see okay you know what's the next step after we're done with the current version of evolutionary psychology what will be the next theory that transcends it so i'm not doctrinaire about evolutionary psychology but but right now current state of science is such that there's no better framework so that's the framework that i'm using
0: so another person who takes the same general attitude as you in terms of how to understand the workings of the mind is steven pinker and you reference him in your book against reality and uh, i'll just read read a part uh that where you reference uh dr pinker and and i want to get your your take on this so you say that uh In one of his books, he he makes a surprising claim, quote, our minds evolved by natural selection to solve problems that were life and death matters to our ancestors, not to commune with correctness. And and then you continue that that observation is central. Our minds were shaped by natural selection to solve life and death problems, full stop. They were not shaped to commune with correctness. So, So you really emphasize that point. What is that point? Can you elaborate on it for us?
1: That's right. So uh, Stephen Pinker is brilliant, and uh, he's a good friend. Actually, when I was a uh, my last year as a graduate student at MIT was uh, Steve's first year as an assistant professor at MIT, and I had the privilege of uh, becoming his friend uh, and being a student in one of his classes. And and uh, he's been uh, a great help to me over the years. So I'm, I'm you know I'm greatly indebted to Stephen Pinker. And, and frankly, it was his book How the Mind Works that that really got me to study evolutionary psychology more seriously so i mean i was aware of it and, and actually tried to get us to hire someone in the early 90s in in fact lita cosmetics i tried to get our department to hire her but but i hadn't really myself jumped in and studied it and it was you know, steve pinker's book that really got me to jump in and, and study it in, in the late 90s in 99 or 2000 and the point about evolution of a natural selection is the framework of the theory is that it's not about animals are competing and the, the the one that's the the best will um you know is the absolute best of whatever he does it's, it's rather All you have to do is be better than your competition. You have to be a little bit more fit than the competition, a little bit better at getting food, a little bit better at reproducing, a little bit better at fighting, whatever it might be. So you don't have to be the best. So it's not about optimality. It's just better than the competition, just enough to to get past. And so there's nothing about really optimality in in evolution by natural selection. It's more what we call satisficing, finding solutions that are better than the competition and, and get the job done. And in particular, although most of us intuitively think that, you know, of course we should see reality as it is, how else could our perceptions be useful if we don't see reality? Evolutionary theory just basically says um, sensory systems are there to enhance your fitness. Full stop. If you think that to enhance your fitness, sensory systems should evolve to show you the truth. That is something you need to prove. That's not an assumption of the theory. the The assumption of the theory is sensory systems evolve to shape organisms that are more fit. That can then you know, that means reproduce um, more successfully, have more offspring. So it's an interesting hypothesis to say. Well, the way sensory systems do that is they shape you to see aspects of the truth. Maybe not the whole truth. In fact, no one would claim to see all of objective reality, whatever it might be, but that, you, you know, we might be shaped to see some of objective reality. That's an interesting hypothesis. That, that is not written into evolutionary theory, that hypothesis. That, that's something you'd have to prove. Um, all the evolutionary hypothesis says is we're shaped by, with sensory systems that guide adaptive behavior, period. And so that's, that's what Pinker was pointing out there. And, and I, I agree with him full, full heartily. And, and, you know, we have many examples of this. I mean, we, um, for example, there are good reasons for us to try to deceive others. <laughs> and so, you know, you know hunter-gatherer society, um, if everybody go out, go, goes out and gathers and comes back or hunts and comes back and, and shares, you know, if I didn't get so, I didn't succeed today. But you know, my friend Joe, you brought down a, you know, a bison. Then uh, you know, I might ask Joe to give me some of his bison, and tomorrow when I you know, do better than Joe, I'll give him something of mine. So we might have some kind of cooperation that way. But in a, in a, it's easy to show mathematically that in a situation where everybody is cooperating in that way, then cheating is a very fit strategy. If I go out there and pretend to hunt and gather, but really what I'm doing is going down by the river, finding a nice shade tree and just relaxing. And, and, and then I'll come back at the end of the day and go, oh, Joe, you know, I had a hard day, couldn't find anything, could have some of yours. And, and, and if Joe, you know, is a kind guy and just keeps doing that for me, then, then I'm going to be far more fit than Joe because Joe's out there you know, putting his life on the line, wasting his energy. You know that I'm not wasting. You know, hunting down stuff, and so that strategy is more fit. And so you can actually show that the the deceiver, the cheater, um, is if everybody else is cooperating, the defector, the cheater, is more fit and will reproduce more than than us. So, so then you get this evolutionary game or arms race in which if Joe can detect when I'm BSing him, who can detect when I'm cheating and I'm lying to him, then he won't be taken advantage of as, as often. So he would be a little bit more fit. So now you find that there's going to be selection pressures for the cooperators to begin to detect the cheaters. But then if I'm a cheater, if I learn how to be a better cheater, and I can still persuade the cooperators, then I could still be more fit. So you get this, what we call an evolutionary arms race where the, the cheaters become better at deceiving and the cooperators get better at detecting the cheaters and punishing them. And you get all the emotions of anger and retribution and justice and so forth coming up as, as a result of this evolutionary process. And uh, Robert Trivers is, is quite famous in evolutionary circles for pointing out that the best deceiver the best cheater who's deceiving is the one who is self-deceived, who doesn't even know that they're lying. Because if you know it, you might subtly betray you know, a blush, shifty eyes, your posture might change, you might give away. But if you believe it deep down, deep down, you are completely self-deceived and you're, you believe your lie, then you're the best deceiver. And so, so there are evolutionary pressures for us to be deeply deceived about our own motivations. So this uh, is just one of, uh, one of many examples we can give where uh, selection pressures don't lead to the truth. They could lead to um, deception, not only of others, but of yourself.
0: <clears throat> I think I, I remember vaguely someone in my life saying that like almost every deep scientific or philosophical question is explored at some point in the show Seinfeld. And so what, what you're describing is the, the George Costanza strategy. <laughs> you know, It's not a lie if you believe it. Um, exactly. and so, yeah, there's a real, a lot of interesting dynamics, um, that you can think about in terms of this evolutionary framework, especially, especially relevant to humans are, are the human to human interactions we have and, and the emotions that govern those. I want to put a pin in that stuff because it's often a little bit tricky for people to wrap their minds around. And I want to, I want to build up some other concepts for people. So You know, thinking in terms of evolutionary psychology, how how and why the mind evolved to be the way it is. How would you think about something like beauty? Right. So a common aphorism is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I'm wondering what someone like you makes of a statement like that. And I know that in the book you give a really interesting uh, ecological example that ties into this that had had to do with something called
1: a jewel beetle. So so
0: what's going on there?
1: That's right. So from an evolutionary point of view, attractiveness is an evolved feature. And our ability to detect attractiveness is an evolved feature. And so when I look at somebody, and in that initial half-second, initial glance, I I often will get a hit. Everybody gets a hit, uh, you know, of the attractiveness of the person. And it's not... Even if you're not trying to do it, you just see it. You just automatically see it. We're wired up to make these evaluations automatically. And the what's really going on there, what, what is it that makes you automatically see someone as more attractive than someone else? From an evolutionary point of view, what you're doing unconsciously is one of the most sophisticated computations of your entire life. You're bringing in through your senses many, many visual auditory smell and other cues about that person, dozens of cues, and you're doing an an extremely important computation with all those cues, you are using those cues to estimate the reproductive potential of the person in front of you. What is the probability that this person could have or successfully raise kids or have and successfully raise kids? Um, and so that's not conscious in the, in the general case, you're not conscious of that, but that's what this is all about. So it's really an estimate of the reproductive potential of the person in front of you. Now, of course, to really know that you would have to know exactly what is the health of the person. Cause you know, if the person has cancer, uh, you know, terminal cancer, well, you know, their reproductive potential is very little. If they have certain genetic defects, the, the reproductive potential is less and so forth. So, but you can't, you can't see if they have cancer cells, you can't read their DNA. So you have to use other cues. And so you use cues like the, um, the quality of the skin, uh, the, the, some features of the eyes, uh, something called the limbal ring that we could talk about if you wish, something that we looked at in my lab. There are dozens of these cues that you're automatically looking at and they won't all tell the right, the same story. Mm. So you you are sophisticated enough to look at the cues and look at the ones that say this person has high reproductive potential versus the ones that say no they don't and to adjudicate all of those and come up with a final answer. And that final answer you feel as the degree of attractiveness from very very attractive to to less attractive. And so that's the that's just one idea about how evolutionary psychology evaluates these things. Most of us think you know that person looks great or not and don't realize that there's this very sophisticated computation going on and and from it was this framework of evolutionary psychology of attractiveness that actually led me and my graduate students to study something called the limbal ring in the eye and to show that that, that feature of the eye is among the dozens or hundreds of cues that are picked up unconsciously to uh, evaluate attractiveness. So uh,
0: let's dwell on the eyes for a moment. The eyes are really interesting in the context of human behavior because a, we're very visual organisms. We're, We're visual primates. A lot of our cortical a lot of our brain real estate is devoted largely to vision. Um, people intuitively, naturally, automatically fixate on one another's eyes. Right, it tells us a lot of information about where someone is looking. People are often very attracted to someone's eyes um, as opposed to other people's eyes, and and they may or may not sort of even be able to articulate what they're attracted to. And there's a lot of a lot of interesting information there that people often subconsciously exaggerate through various cultural mechanisms. So you mentioned one feature of the eye, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of point out for people, what are some of the things that people are consciously or not evaluating in another human being's eyes? And what is that actually tied to in terms of the underlying biology?
1: Well, there's a lot that we look at in the eyes. We probably look at the human face more than any other object. In our in a lifetime, and we look at the eyes more than any other part of the human face. So we spend a lot of time looking at people's eyes, and so it's not a surprise that there are a lot of features of the eyes that affect our our estimates of the attractiveness, the reproductive potential of a person. So, and it differs. Uh, female evaluations of male attractiveness look at the eyes differently than male evaluation of female attractiveness in the eyes. So, so for example, uh, you want to look for signs of right? Because one one feature that, you know, declines with with age is your reproductive potential. As you hit 40, 50, 60, you know, the reproductive potential drops off. And so if you're too young or too old, um, your reproductive potential declines. And so there's going to be an optimal age range. And so you're really trying to estimate, attractiveness is related to that optimal age range. So, and it, it turns out that um, youth is is more critical in females than than males in terms of reproductive potential right the 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 females have uh, a shorter window of reproductive potential than males and so so these are the kinds of selection pressures that will females will not be as pressured to look for youth in a male as males will be pressured by selection to look for for youth in females and so so here's one a, a few concrete examples then If you look at a baby's face, the eyes are a big part of that face, right? So they have a small face, but they have big eyes. And as we get older, the ratio of the size of the eyes to the whole size of the face declines. So larger eyes are a sign of youth. And so male ratings of female attractiveness um, are enhanced if the eyes are made a little bit big. Makeup that makes the eyebrows a little bit bigger, that puts eyelashes, that emphasizes the eyes and makes them look a little bit bigger, will make females look more attractive. Um, Males with eyes that look too big will look boyish and therefore not interesting. So, so there's going to be a a big difference there. Uh, Pupil diameter. So, your pupils dilate and contract. If there's not enough light, they dilate. If there's a lot of light, they contract. But they also dilate and contract due to your emotions. And, uh, you know, if you find someone attractive, your your pupils can dilate. And and so um, male ratings of female attractiveness go way up if the picture of the female um, has dilated pupils. The, the more dilated, the better. Males find that very, very attractive. Are you, are you, Females, saying, are, are you saying that, that different. there have been
0: experiments where um, identical photographs have been manipulated by researchers so that the eyes just slightly bigger and somehow, somehow the, the man rating it says this one's more
1: attractive even though he doesn't realize why? Exactly. So in one very funny and famous example, um, a psychology textbook had two covers that looked. It was a, a beautiful woman's face, a young woman's face on it. But in one, in half of the books, they had dilated the pupils of the eyes, and the others they were small. And they just put these books out there, and, and they just asked you know, men to to pick up. You know, they they all looked the same, and if you looked at them, they would just all look the same. But they, they asked me, which one would you like to buy? And the men always, for reasons they didn't understand, they always picked out the books that had the females with the dilated pupils. So this is this goes on under the radar, and and you know I spent a lot of time consulting for various corporations um, for many years, telling them this stuff, and they use it. Um, you're being manipulated all the time in advertisements and at point of sale and everywhere. Uh, I've I've helped them do this. They they know how to make things look attractive. There's I'm, I'm telling you a couple of these things. There's dozens and dozens of these things that can be used to. So, so companies are using evolutionary psychology in, in their products, the product design, the advertisements, the videos that they put online and so forth. So, so yeah, this is, um, this is not, this is the case where evolutionary psychology has proven it's, uh, it's worth so well that companies are, are paying big bucks to, to use this stuff. I see. And now,
0: you know, sometimes we see things or other animals see things that you might call uh super stimuli. So things that resemble certain features that Mm. normally in most circumstances indicate some high potential fitness payoff, but are nonetheless not attached to an actual fitness payoff. You gave a really interesting example that I had not heard about before of these things called jewel beetles. And so what is that example and what is that actually telling
1: us? So this is the phenomenon called supernormal stimuli Mm. in, in, in evolutionary theory. And, these are the cases where it, what, what seems to be going on is that the visual system, the sensory systems of organisms do need to do things quickly and with as few calories as possible. So we try to you know, find heuristics and tricks, shortcuts to get to the answer. So instead of giving you know a detailed analysis of exactly the, the optimal eye and so forth, we might evolve um, some shortcuts. The bigger the eye, the better. Um, the bigger the pupil, the better. In other words, there, there there may be these sort of shortcut that are built into the computation, so you can get the computation done right and quickly. Um, and and even if you get it wrong a little bit, the fact that you can do it quickly and most of the time you're right, it should be good enough. So there's a trade-off between the most accurate kind of representation versus how quickly and how cheaply you can do it. So, and we see this in the case of, of the jewel beetle. So this is um, a beetle in the outback of Western Australia, um, the, the beetles are uh, dimpled, glossy, and brown. Um, the males fly, the females are flightless. But the males fly around and looking, you know, for eligible females. And, and if he finds one, he alights and mates. Um, but it, it turns out that um, in the outback, there were also, uh, you know, men who liked to drink beer, and they had these beer bottles called stubbies that were also dimpled, glossy, and just the right shade of brown. And so, the the guys would toss the empties out into the outback. And it turned out that um, the the jewel beetle males would flock all over these bottles, trying to mate. So, they had full body contact with the bottles, and they would try to mate. And the, the, the females weren't interesting because this was a super female, apparently, to to these male jewel beetles. So the species um, could have gone extinct. They had to, you know, remove the bottles and change the bottles to to save the species. So here's a remarkable thing that, you know, the jewel beetle had been around, you know, countless thousands, maybe even millions of years. Um, the males had successfully found and mated with eligible females for for that whole time. You'd think that evolution had taught the males. To know and recognize what a real female is and, and and apparently not it just gave the male jewel beetles a, a hack a, a little trick a female is anything dimpled glossy and brown the bigger the better and and so when they found this dimpled glossy brown bottle that was bigger than any normal female there that, that's a super normal stimuli that was just far more attractive to them and so they and so even being on the bottle and trying to mate unsuccessfully didn't override these cues that were that they were using to determine attractiveness, hmm. and so we have the you know the whole makeup industry is based on supernormal sim, uh, supernormal stimuli. So women will put on lipstick that makes lips um, a, a shade of red, for example, that would never occur in nature,
0: hmm.
1: but men find it more attractive, right? So so there's something going on there, right? Red lips are certainly healthier than blue lips. They indicate a degree of oxygenation in the blood and therefore health, but so but what you happen have in makeup is you take the cues that males are using to find females attractive and making them go even beyond what would ever occur in nature. The same thing happens with um, the, the kinds of cosmetic surgery that you might you know um, artificial implants and so forth will we'll also do this kind of thing so so we, we use supernormal stimuli all the time in makeup and, um, and so forth. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm also struck
0: by, you know, the, the use of things like eyeglasses and contact lenses, um, not only to correct visual defects, but perhaps to, to do other things that we might not even
1: realize that we're doing. Yes. Um, so you're just talking like contacts without any electronics in them or anything like that. Uh, just, yeah, just, I mean, just
0: uh, you know, you might wear a pair of glasses and it actually you know magnifies the size that your eyes look to someone else, or contacts that emphasize, say, the the color or or the
1: change that outer ring in the in the eye. That, that's right. So one of the things that we discovered in in my lab, um, and this is work with uh, Darren Peshek and um, and and others. That Darren did his PhD on this. We, we discovered that there's if you look closely at the eye, where the white of the eye meets the colored part, the iris, in many people, you can see a little ring there. It's harder to see in really dark brown or, or black eyes, but if you, lighter brown eyes, blue eyes, gray eyes, you can see, in many cases, this so-called limbal ring. And it, it turns out that the limbal ring is very pronounced in babies and as we age it tends to be less pronounced and being able to see a limbal ring requires also that the cornea be clear so if you have cataracts or something like that in the cornea you won't be able to see the limbal rings so so it, we hypothesized that that people will find distinct limbal rings more attractive than non-distinct and in bigger that males in particular would find larger limbal rings in females more attractive because they would indicate youth so you get both youth and health as a signal from the limbal ring so we we did the experiments in, in one experiment we would have males so we looked at female ratings of male attractiveness but the, the one that's really striking is the male ratings of female attractiveness we have two pictures the same female face side by side and the the and they looked identical We'd artificially change the limbal ring in one of them, in in one face. The the two limbal rings in the eyes of of one face. we enhanced them to make a little bit bigger, but it wasn't over the top, right? It was so subtle that you would have to look for it to to see that we'd done it. But we just asked the males and the females to rate which of the two faces um, was more attractive, and people would look at someone go, "What are you doing?" They're the same face. Well, you know, we said, "Well, you know, just you know, humorous. Just go ahead and just." Choose one, and so they would. They thought they were randomly choosing, and, and yet they significantly chose the face with the the um, larger limbal rings over the other one, even though they had no idea what was going on. Hmm. So, so this is again the case that, that shows that that this was a supernormal stimulus in the sense that we had taken those faces and enhanced the rings bigger than that face had, and and perhaps a little bit bigger than it would normally have had um, I- anyway. So it was a slightly supernormal stimuli, and we unconsciously pick it up. And so, so really, when you interact with a person in the first 500 milliseconds, the first half second of interaction with a person, you're just unconsciously taking in dozens and dozens of cues, unconsciously, and doing a very sophisticated analysis. And the end result is the probability that this person, you know, um, could successfully bear or have you know father or or mother and raise um offspring so so that's what we're really doing but we just feel it as attractiveness that that attractiveness which seems just like a a knee-jerk reaction is a very sophisticated summary of an incredibly complex computation that's going on Hmm. now we we
0: We obviously know what we mean when we say attractiveness with respect to other people. If I'm attracted to someone, versus being attracted to someone else, we we all know what that means. We're also, as people, attracted to things that aren't people. We're attracted to activities we might engage in. We're attracted to uh, literally inanimate objects and other kinds, in other senses of the word, attracted but what exactly does that, how, how do we think about that in terms of fitness payoff? So, so if I perceive something in my environment, that's completely inanimate, what, what does that have to do with uh, something like fitness payoffs? If it's not another person that I have any reproductive potential towards.
1: Right. So there's very, there's a lot of different answers for a lot of different contexts on, on this, but I'll, I'll just mention a couple. So in the case of, um, various plants and fruits, right? Again, what we're doing is our attractiveness is, or the degree to which we find something interesting might be dependent on how likely it is to be um, um, beneficial to us to eat. So we can look at various colors on fruits and textures of fruits. And we're very sensitive to that. We can tell by looking whether it's ripe or not, and whether we want to, to eat it or, or not. So we have that kind of ability. When we look at larger scenes, um, like, like big landscape vistas, there's some evidence that we tend to find more attractive those scenes that would be more likely to um, help us survive. So you might want to have some trees, but not be in the middle of a forest. You might want to have a river, and it might you want might want to see it bending out of the beans so that there's more to explore there. You might want to be seeing everything from a slight hill, but not Mount Everest, where you can actually see any enemies or predators that might come your way. So, so in other words, our a feeling of a, a liking and disliking a scene again has to do with its effects on our reproductive potential and, and our, our fitness in terms of. Can we see predators can we see prey can we avoid predators can we avoid being prey and and you know is there a place to explore for resources it, you know so so we might have you know also an attraction to the austerity of a desert but but in, in many cases that's a different kind of thing I mean, this this is um a, a lot of our attraction is, is based on what would um lead to you know survival and reproduction consequences. Now, there there are other levels beyond that as well. So, we might, um, there are social pressures now. I mean, I I may um, find that I start liking a certain kind of art because my in-group says that that's the kind of art I should like. And so, so there are social pressures as well. So, then that is fitness as well because conforming to my group, gives me access to the group gives me feedback you know positive health from the group and so forth so we have in groups and out groups that can also affect our our judgments here Um, so that's another so this this is it's a very very rich field it has everything to do with not only mating but also eating the 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 areas we like to live the the groups that we want to associate with and the the fighting that we have between political parties and, and international conflicts and so forth Evolutionary psychology is is a f- powerful framework for understanding all of this. Hmm. So, and a lot of the stuff that we're really going to keep digging into here
0: is going to boil down to our our conscious perceptions and and what exactly are we seeing? What exactly are we perceiving when we? perceive something ultimately what we're going to talk about is what we're perceiving real and, and what does that even mean to to say that it's real or not so before we we do some of that stuff can you just define a couple terms for people from from your standpoint what is consciousness and what is perception what do those things mean to
1: you well so I'll start with perception and I, I would say that um, it's standard in the field of you know psychology evolutionary psychology and cognitive science to think about sensory systems as organs in our bodies that take information in from the environment and represent that information in a way that can guide adaptive behavior. Those, those, that would be called perception. So perception occurs um, when we interact with the environment, gather information from the environment uh, in, in a format that is useful for us to actually interact with that environment. So there's a perception action loop that goes on, um, in, in in this point of view, <clears throat> so we have perceptual systems, but but presumably so does an amoeba. Right? It doesn't have perhaps eyes, but it has some kinds of sensory systems that allow it to maybe have more direct contact, or or voltage gated channels, or something like that that are that are being triggered. Now consciousness. Um, The way to talk about consciousness is very much the way i would try to tell someone about the color red right so if you were blind i would have a hard time telling you what red is right i (laughs) how do you say to a blind person well it's it's like it's hot it's it's more like hot than cold or something like but but you would realize that anything that you could say is really going to fall for sure you, you, if you want to know what red is you've got to see it and that's the same thing with all, most of our sensory systems like if i if, if someone had never tasted vanilla before if i said or if they couldn't taste and i, I tried to explain what the taste of vanilla was like good luck uh, you, know, you can't you can't explain it you know you just you'd be and and so when I try to say what I mean by consciousness, I have to point to it in the same way that I point to the notion of, you know, a red apple to someone who is not blind. And and so I would say, so here's the pointer that I'll give you for what I mean by consciousness. Um, When you open your eyes and then close them, you just had a change in your conscious visual experience. Whatever just changed when you had your eyes open versus when they closed, that's a change in your conscious visual experience. So I'll leave you that pointer and then I'll leave it to you to or um, if you have a, a siren is going by, and then suddenly it turns off, that change is a change, that, that's an auditory experience. But that silence versus the siren, that's an auditory conscious experience. And so so there are all these conscious experiences of touch, taste, smell, and so forth, that th- these are experiences that that we that we have firsthand, and uh, that's the best way I can point them out so they're they're experiences that that we all seem to to just take for granted
0: so one of the one of the interesting features of conscious experience that we all have and often take for granted is that it's 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 unified. It's integrated, right? So so if when I when I look at you on the screen here and I see everything in my field of vision, I'm not I, I'm just see, sort of seeing one holistic image of everything. I'm not I'm not perceptually decomposing everything into its separate shapes and colors and, and all of these things. I can talk about those components. I can create abstractions that try and pick apart the different aspects of the scene, but there's this sort of unified, wholeness to our conscious experiences that exist moment to moment. We feel like one entity having having one such experience nearly all the time. But there are interesting examples where consciousness can be split. And you, you started to talk about some of those in the book. So can you talk a little bit about some of the split brain experiments that can be done and what that says about the, the unitary nature of consciousness?
1: That's right. So your brain has two hemispheres, a left and the right hemisphere. And you have about 86 billion neurons in your brain, 43 on each side. And the two hemispheres are connected by a band of fibers. That's about 200 to 220 million axons. These are neural fibers. So it's, it's like, think about it like a, a, a cable, a computer cable, connecting two, cub- uh, two computers together. So, the, the left and right hemisphere have this very 200 million, 220 million axon cable connecting the two hemispheres, and they pass information back and forth between the two hemispheres. And uh, actually, a friend of mine, uh, Joe Bogan, was a, a surgeon who, in very se- severe cases of epilepsy, where a person had an epileptic focus in one hemisphere, you know, a bad part of the brain that was sending off random signals that would cause them to have seizures. When when they couldn't be treated with drugs, they would, in desperation, try this surgery where they would open up the skull, and Joe and other – there there were a couple of surgeons who did this, but Joe Bogan, who was a friend of mine who did this, would take a scalpel and cut the corpus callosum. Sometimes all of it, or sometimes just the part that he thought would be enough to to deal with things. The the idea was that suppose the – the bad part of the brain, what we call the epileptic focus, was in the left hemisphere. Well, when it goes bad, it's, it sends the whole left hemisphere into a, an electrical storm. And that's what an epileptic seizure is. It's an electrical storm that sort of just takes you down. The reason why you're jerking around is because your motor cortex has all this random neural activity going through it. And, so, and, and it, then it goes to the right hemisphere because it goes over the corpus callosum. The information goes across the corpus callosum and so the right hemisphere goes down and so the whole brain goes down so the the idea of the surgery was if we cut the corpus callosum maybe only one hemisphere will go down and the other hemisphere can stay conscious or it's you know at least stay alert so that you don't you know fall down and hurt yourself or if you're driving you know kill yourself and things like that well the surgery was a dramatic success it it really reduced the frequency and and difficulty of these epileptic episodes. So it was a a clinical success. And a, a bunch of experiments then began to show that very interesting thing, you can, it turns out that the right hemisphere is getting information from the left part of your visual field. So if I'm looking straight ahead at you, everything to the left, so right now I'm looking at your nose, everything to the left of your nose is my left visual field because I'm looking at your nose. Everything to the right of your nose is my right visual field. So everything to the left of, of your nose is now going first to my right hemisphere. And everything to the right of your nose, that, that part of the visual world is going to my left hemisphere. Now in, in normal people with the corpus callosum, the two hemispheres then quickly communicate and you also, your eyes move around and so forth. So, so you, you, know, you can get the information um, to both hemispheres. But what they found was that they could do an experiment with these split brain patients. Um, where they flash on the screen a phrase like key ring. So they have, a, they have a person look at a dot in the middle of the screen. So there's a blank screen, and I just there's a dot. And we ask the person, please look at the dot. And then while they're looking, we flash up the phrase key ring, where key is to the left of the dot, and ring appears to the right of the dot. So we just flash it up for a tenth of a second so that you don't have enough time to move your eyes, right? So So when we do that, then the word key only goes to the right hemisphere, and the word ring only goes to the left hemisphere. And it turns out when you ask these people what they saw, the person will say, oh, I only saw the word ring. And the, they'll say that because the left hemisphere, for most people, has the language speech centers. So when, when I'm talking with you right now, it's my left hemisphere that's doing the talking. That's the, the, the side that controls speech. The right hemisphere can understand language and it can cuss, But it usually can't speak but it it can it can pull out profanities but it can't can't talk so the person when you ask them what did you see they'll they'll say i saw the word ring and you say well um what kind of ring a wedding ring doorbell ring a key ring what, what, what kind of ring and the person will go i don't know i just saw the word ring and then if you ask the person with their left hand to you give them a little box and put your hand in your left hand in the box and pull out what it is that you saw. And you have all sorts of things in there there's a pencil, there's a spoon, there's a, there's a key, there's a ring, and so forth. And there's also a key ring. The left hand will go through, it'll pick up all sorts of stuff, and it'll come out with a key. And, and so you, you ask the person, you know, so, and if you do it with the right hand, the right hand will pull out a ring because the left hemisphere controls the right hand. So, and if you have both hands work independently, the left hand will pull out a key while the right hand is pulling out a ring. And if you do this with a blindfolded person, right, the person just told you that they saw the word key. I'm sorry, they they saw the word ring. So, they'll tell you with their mouth, I saw the word ring. When you blindfold them have them pull out with their left hand what they saw, and the left hand pulls out a key, then you unblindfold them, and, and they look, and they why did you pull out a key with your left hand? You said you saw a ring. The person will, will either say, I have no idea. or well, they'll make up a story. Well, they'll, they'll confabulate. So it turns out that the two hemispheres can have completely different conscious experiences. One is having an experience of the word key. The other is having the experience of the word ring. And, and it goes even deeper. They, they can have different personalities and different religious beliefs. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, V.S. and his friends call him Rama. So Rama is a professor at UC San Diego. With one split brain patient, he found that the, I believe it was the left hemisphere believed in God and the right hemisphere was an atheist. So you can have not only different conscious experiences, but different personality structures that are associated with the two hemispheres. And so this then raises a very interesting question about consciousness and its relationship to the brain.
0: you know, what is that? So, I mean, that's a very dramatic example where, you know, literally these people have had a key component of their brain physically severed. And so that, that helps us understand why you get some of these dramatic split brain results that, that you see when you put people in these, these contrived situations in the laboratory. Is it possible that um, normal consciousness, even for, for a completely healthy, you know, awake person like you or me, is split in ways that we simply don't even recognize or realize. Um, to, I mean, start to think about this, right? You can imagine, you know, if you just think about your own life, like you're not the exact same version of yourself in all social contexts. Like I, I act differently and I'm prone to speak differently and do different things around my close friends as compared to my colleagues or my family. Is, is something like that going on in the normal brain, potentially even to a degree that's, you know, beyond
1: what we're, we're even aware of? Well, yes, we have good evidence that there are all sorts of networks of activity in the brain, the default mode network, attention network, there's various networks that are are going on. And, And then the two hemispheres can have completely different personalities. And you might have a left hemisphere that wants to do one thing, and a right hemisphere that wants to do something else. And, you know, it's Friday night, and you're deciding whether to party or to study, if you're a student, for example. And maybe the left hemisphere wants to study, and the right hemisphere wants to party. And, and you find that you are conflicted. it might literally be a conflict between two different personalities in one head that are talking via the corpus callosum and have different ideas about what to do on a Friday night. So there's, yes, there's there's not just one you. We tend to think of yourself as just one you, but there's at least two yous, possibly, in fact, probably, with very, very different likes and dislikes um, when, when it's been tested. The left hemisphere and the right hemisphere Usually are systematically quite different in, in their personalities and what they like and dislike. As different as being atheist versus religious, <laughs> quite quite different. And and it seems to we can go down to smaller and smaller circuits in, in, in the nervous system and, and and find all sorts of interesting structure all the way down. So so you're you're not just one. We, we tend to think of ourselves as one unified being, but. But from a neurobiological point of view, you have two hemispheres, and each hemisphere has forty three billion neurons with various kind of uh, networks, you know, default mode network and so forth. Um, and so you're a, a complex thing from a neurobiological point of view. Interesting. And you
0: know one of the things that's worth talking about relatively early in the conversation here is you know when when we're trying to understand something like consciousness in terms of its relationship to the brain. So when a neuroscientist is thinking about these things, they're often looking for these things that are called the neural correlates of consciousness. Can you explain what that, what that means for people and the extent to which, um, well, first, let's just define what are neural correlates of consciousness. So when a neuroscientist is looking for such a thing, what are they doing?
1: Right. So there. I'll, I'll give a concrete example just before I try to give a definition, because I think the definition won't make much sense without the example. So there's an area of the brain called area V4, visual area 4, and roughly back here on both hemispheres. And if you have a stroke in, say, the area V4 of your left hemisphere, you will have something called hemiachromatopsia. You lose all color in the right, right visual world. You just see like a black and white picture, shades of gray. Uh, and if you instead had the stroke in the right hemisphere, area V4, then you would lose color in the left visual field. It would just be shades of gray. You, so you'd have, if I have, a, so, so suppose the stroke is in my right hemisphere. So my left field is just black and white, shades of gray. If I take a red apple and put it right in front of me, the, the left half might look black and white, and the right half might look red. So I move it over. Now it's all black and white and shades of gray over here, now it's red. So as I move the apple around through my visual fields, I get different um, color experiences. So, so here we have a, an interesting correlation between the activity of a part of the brain, area V4, and a specific kind of, of color experience, um, you know, a visual experience of color. And you can do something with a, a device called a transcranial magnetic stimulation device. It's, it's a strong magnet. And you can literally just touch it to the skull and turn on the magnet. You, but don't try this at home. You need to know what you're doing, because you can actually fry your brain if you don't do this thing right. So so you you don't do this at home. But with the TMS unit and proper supervision, they can put it by area V4 and inhibit V4, and you will experience color drain from your left visual world. And then when you let when you turn off the inhibition, the color, you see the color flow back into your visual world. Hmm. So, here, so now I can start to tell you what I'm, what we mean by a neural correlative of conscious experience. So, there's this specific conscious ex- experience of color. And there's this specific area of the brain, area V4, that seems to be correlated in this, in this way. So, technically, what we're trying to do are find the minimal neural circuitry that is correlated with specific kinds of conscious experiences or the minimal circuitry that's available, that's necessary for just being awake versus in a dreamless sleep, that's another kind of experience that we could talk about as well. So there's specific conscious experiences and there's just being awake and alert versus flat out, you know, just gone uh, unconscious, Mm -hmm. like under sedation. So they're the minimal neural structures that that are perhaps um, correlated and, and most of my colleagues think that are the sources of generation of the conscious experience so
0: at one point in the book you said that quote many experiments hunt for correlations in neural activity and consciousness expecting that as the hunt succeeds and the list of correlations grows a critical discovery will solve the mystery of consciousness just as the double helix solved the mystery of life so so let's just suppose right 100 years go by, 200 years go by, whatever it is, we learn more and more about the brain. We can define all of the cell types. We understand something um, in, in a lot of detail about the dynamics of brain activity. The idea is that at some point, the knowledge will be sufficiently dense that we can create theories that will allow us to explain why we have qualitative experience at all. Right? This is really the so-called hard, hard problem of consciousness, and you know, many people throughout the ages have have come come out on both sides of, of the aisle here, but do you believe that there will come a point where we know enough about the brain that we can actually solve that problem or is it actually
1: insoluble? Well, first I'll say what most of my colleagues think and that is that I would say 99% of my colleagues in the cognitive neurosciences and also other fields, artificial intelligence that are looking at this kind of problem. Uh, I think that 99% of them uh, assume that physical systems, like brains, or perhaps computational systems, you know, silicon chips and so forth, um, are part of fundamental reality. So space and time are fundamental. Physical objects in space and time are fundamental reality. And certain physical systems with the right kind of complexity, like brains with their neural circuits, or perhaps computers with the right kind of programming of their circuits, will have the right kind of complexity to generate conscious experiences. So this is this is the, the, the standard view. So it's what you might call a version of naturalism. Space and time are fundamental. Particles, elementary particles, are the fundamental reality of, of objects inside space and time. Neurons are, and computers are just vast, complex assemblies of interacting particles. And when you get the right kind of interaction of these particles, the right complexity, then Conscious experiences um, emerge, and the example I gave of V4 would seem to confirm that, right? That you know, it's if you stimulate, well, if, if you inhibit V4, you lose color experiences. I should also mention, if you stimulate V4, you'll get psychedelic color experiences. So you know, if you stimulate it, you get these wild color experiences coming out of it as well. So clearly, it must be that V4 is causing the conscious experiences, right? If I Take out V4, you lose them. If I you know, stimulate it, you you get them. Clearly, um, area V4 is causing the color experiences. And I would say that that most of my colleagues think that that's the case. That that we will it's a matter of time before we figure out how the physical systems generate the conscious experiences. Right. So so of course, saying that V4, when you stimulate V4, you get color experiences. When you ablate V4, when you, when you, you know, delete V4, <laughs> you ruin it, um, you lose color experiences. That's not a theory about how V4 creates color experiences. Pff, not at all. So it, there's no explanation there at, at all. That's just the data that you need to. This is the good data that we're getting that needs to be explained. Why is it that V4 stimulation uh, leads to color phosphenes so the color experiences? And why is it that v, V4 um, um, damage leads to color loss? So what's remarkable is, I would say 99% of my colleagues think we'll have a story. But right now, and, and I can talk about the stories that are, that are out there. And These are my friends. They're brilliant people. Um, they're, they're interesting stories. But as I tell them to their face, there's not a single specific conscious experience that their theories can explain. Um, so we can go into some of those. But, but here's the state of play right now. Everybody thinks that somehow brain activity or more general computer activity or the right kind of complex activity somehow gives rise to conscious experiences. But right now we have no theory that can explain even one specific conscious experience. And really no theory that's believed by anybody but the person proposing it and and their graduate students in in some sense. That it's, there's a lot of of theories out there because no theory has really, succeeded in explaining anything to everybody's um, satisfaction. So, my own take is this whole effort has missed an important fact that modern science has discovered in the last few decades, right? So most of my colleagues in the neurosciences and so forth, computational, artificial intelligence, are assuming um, an ontology of physicalism so space-time is fundamental physical objects in space-time are fundamental so that's the ontology and a, a methodology of reductionism that as we go to smaller scales in space-time we find more and more fundamental laws and that those two uh, hypotheses the ontology of uh, space-time and the methodology of, of reductionism have been spectacularly successful in, in, in science for, for several centuries. They've, they're in, incredible what they've done. But it's the glory of science to be able to look at its own theories and transcend them to get new theories, right? For a while, we thought Newton was the final answer. and In the 1890s, it was perfectly acceptable to think that physics was done and you, you could send smart graduate students to some other field because it, it was all over in physics. Uh, and and then, Newton, then Einstein comes along in 1905 and sort of, and then Planck comes along in 1900 and sort of blows that away. And so our two biggest scientific pillars are now telling us something very important. This is evolution by natural selection on the one hand, and also quantum field theory together with gravity. What the physicists are telling us is that space-time is doomed. And that's a quote. That's a quote from physicists named Nima Arkani Hamed, also Ed Witten, David Gross, and and others. This is not wild-eyed weirdness from fringe physicists. These are state-of-the-play state-of-the-art brilliant physicists right now working who have taken a very sober look at what our current physics is telling us and they're saying space-time has had a good run and it's over we need a new deeper framework than space-time and they're they're actually finding deeper mathematical structures so Nima arkani hamed and juan Maldacena. Um, at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. So this is not at Podunk U somewhere. This is <laughs> one of the most serious places for physics research in the world. Um, they have something they call the cosmological polytope. It's beyond space-time. It's beyond quantum theory. There are no Hilbert spaces. It's, it's, so space and time are not fundamental. Objects in space and time are not fundamental. There's this deeper realm of the, the cosmological polytope and also something called the amplituhedron, and these structures allow them to predict scattering processes at colliders, like the Large Hadron Collider, better than the theories inside space-time in the sense that that the mathematics becomes more simple and you see symmetries when you let go of space-time. So, so physics is telling us, and this has just been in the last two or three decades that has really become very clear that physics is telling us space-time has had a good run and it's over. So, and with space-time, reductionism is dead because so, you simply can't go to smaller scales. I see.
0: So uh, to help me wrap my head around this as a non-physicist, when you say that some physicists are saying that space-time is doomed, does that mean that... So, so space-time as a, as a construct, you can think of it as a mathematical construct, needed to get various equations to work out such that they actually predict experiments and observations in the physical world. Are you saying that there are observations that physicists have made that cannot be um, adequately explained unless you suppose some other structure besides space-time?
1: Uh, well, it, it's even worse than that. It's, it's that the very theories themselves, like quantum field theory together with gravity, when you do the computation, it tells you that the very notion of space-time ceases to even be sensible when you get to a small scale, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, the so-called Planck scale. The, the very notion of space-time ceases to make any sense. And then when you look at quantum theory, quantum theory says you have to have a measuring device and then the system that you're measuring. And suppose we have a room, we want to measure um, say, the the spin of the electron to arbitrary position, uh, you know, pre- precision. Well, quantum theory tells us that the measuring device is a physical system with its own degrees of freedom. And if you want to get, because it's a quantum system, it's subject to an uncertainty principle. And so if you want to get a more precise measurement of the position or momentum or spin of an electron, you need to have more and more degrees of freedom in the measuring device itself, because it itself has uncertainty. So as you add more and more degrees of freedom, you're, at, you're adding more and more mass to this measuring device. And at some point, what happens is, as you try to get more and more precision, the device itself gets so massive that the room with the device and the electron they're trying to measure collapses into a black hole and your measurement is destroyed. And so there's a what it means is that there are no local observables in spacetime. There's quantum theory with gravity basically tells us there's no local observables in spacetime. There's nothing local that can be measured to very very high precision. In, in fact 10 to the minus 33 centimeters is all the precision that you can get in terms of spatial resolution. I would have been impressed if it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion. But 10 to the minus 33, I'm not very impressed at all. uh, Space-time is a very, very um, small tool. So it just gives up. And what they found is if you now start finding structures beyond space-time, like the cosmological polytope and the amplituhedron, you can show how they project into space-time and can predict what you would see in space-time, like in the Large Hadron Collider when two gluons go in and smash into each other and four gluons go spraying out, you can look at the probabilities, what they call the, the amplitudes, for the various kinds of scattering events. If you do it with mathematics of space-time, like using quantum field theory, the answer is pretty ugly. You get hundreds of pages of algebra, It's 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 very very difficult. If you do it outside of space time in these new deeper structures where you just let go of space time, you can do something that might be hundreds of pages of algebra in space time. You can do in three or four terms. Um, so the math becomes simpler, and then you also discover that there are symmetries in the scattering data that, for example, it's something called a dual conformal symmetry that you can't see in space time, but you can see in these deeper structures. So. So the physicists like Dimar Connie, Hamed, and, and others are all in now. That's what their careers are. And, and you can imagine why the, the young physicists are all excited about this, right? Because it's something something new. They they can discover something that... So space-time has had a good run. It's over. The really bright people are now... Many really bright people are now scrambling to try to find what is beyond space-time. What is it that goes beyond space-time? So... Um...
0: First, can I ask you? Um, so the, I'm pick, we're picking up like the pen or something on your desk on the microphone. Um, one of the things. So this is all fascinating stuff. Um, I want to try and bring it back to some of the evolution perception stuff sure. um, and talk about it from a, a different angle. Partly because this is this is so fascinating and so beyond my area of expertise that you know it's hard for me to even evaluate you know, evaluate some of these things that the physicists are doing. Um, But so, so with respect to space time, not from a physicist perspective, but say from a uh, sensory neuroscientist perspective, can you talk about what space time is in terms of the brain and how it's generating perceptions? How would you actually think about describing uh, what space time is from, from the standpoint of a cognitive neuroscientist?
1: So uh, most of my colleagues would say that um, the brain is estimating the true shapes of objects and distances of objects in space-time. So we've been shaped. My, my advisor David Marr at MIT in his book Vision was very explicit that um, we've evolved to estimate the true shapes, curvatures of objects, and their distances, and so forth. He Marr thought that you know simpler creatures like flies. Probably didn't have truths about uh, reality. They just had sensory signals that sort of guided wing movements that were that were adaptive. But for us, we're actually estimating the truth. And there's a whole branch of work in, in my field, Bayesian estimation of, of of visual features and auditory features of, of the world. And and so so that's the standard view: is that um, there is a real physical world out there. That, you know, the apple really exists and has a shape and a color when it's not perceived. And my brain and your brain um, takes in all sorts of visual cues and estimates the true shape and color and so forth, the distance to, to that apple. So, so that's the, the standard view. I decided to check. And by the way, I, I was raised on it. My, my advisor <laughs> took that point of view. I believed it. Um, but then I started looking at evolution natural selection um, more, more carefully. And there's evolution is now a mathematically precise theory it's, it's called evolutionary game theory and so you can use the tools of the, the mathematical tools of evolutionary game theory to ask a precise question and the question is this: what is the probability that sensory systems have been shaped by natural selection to see any Aspects of true structures in the objective world. What is the probability that, that sensory systems have been shaped to see the truth, or at least some of the truth? Clean, technical question, right? The, the nice thing is, you might say, well, that's that's the kind of question you, you know, have with your, your, your friends at Friday night after a few beers. And, and this is, no, this is a clean, technical question. Evolutionary game theory has the tools to answer that question precisely. And the answer is, is very, very straightforward. The probability that any sensory system has been shaped to see any truth about objective reality, except for one truth that I can talk about. There's only one. But the the, the probability that it has been shaped to see any sensory truth, except the one I'll mention, if you want, is zero. So the probability is precisely zero that our perceptions of shape and color and motion and depth um, are true. What evolution makes clear is that the very language of our perceptions of shape and color and position and, and, and sounds and so forth is simply the wrong language to describe objective reality. So it's not that we get the colors a little bit off or the shapes a little bit off. It's that there is no possible true description at all in the language of our senses. That's what evolution entails. So, so most of my colleagues would say, oh, we don't see all the truth, but we just see the parts of the truth that we need you need to look at evolutionary theory very very clearly and and the the, the reason the answer is the probability is zero that we see any aspect of reality is that fitness payoff functions which govern our behavior we, if we want we can get into that but the fitness payoff functions which govern evolution almost surely have no information about the structure of the world in them they erase information about the structure of the world i think
0: yeah i think we we should dig into that because we need we need an example or something here that that gets at what you just described because it's it's extremely counterintuitive. It sort of flies in the face of all common not only commonsensical views of, of what the real world is, but but even uh, you know very informed views. So, you know, when I you know I'm just gonna speak off a cup. If I'm looking here at this cup, right, I can triangulate various aspects of the cup using a multitude of senses that correlates perfectly well with what other people would use using any combination of their senses. And it's not difficult for me to say, well, I I can understand that my perception is limited, right? My photoreceptors only pick up certain wavelengths. My somatosensory receptors in my skin are only going to be able to pick up certain frequencies and and textures and things and so on and so forth. So I, I can buy very easily that the full or complete picture of reality might not be there. But because all of these different sensory systems across individuals seem to be triangulating the same basic thing, how is it that you can say that there's absolutely, or very little, almost zero chance that, that whatever, whatever the real cup is, whatever that is, is actually being described even if
1: imperfectly? So I'll answer at two levels. <clears throat> First of all, I'll just answer that um, the evolutionary, what's remarkable here is that evolutionary theory agrees with what the physicists are saying. Space time is doomed. It's over, and objects in sp- with 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 space time go all the objects in space time. They're not fundamental. So what's remarkable is that the two pillars of modern science both agree on this very counterintuitive plane. So so now to your your question, how how can we understand this? How is there? I have a metaphor that I think might be helpful. So imagine that you're um, you put on a virtual reality headset. You're in the metaverse, and you're playing. Say um tennis with your friend who's also got a headset and bodysuit on, and so you you pick up the tennis ball and you hit it to your friend, and you you hold up the tennis ball. Now, you and your friend both see the tennis ball, but now when you hold up that tennis ball only when you're he- when you turn your head to headset in a certain way do you see the tennis ball right? When you turn your headset that way, you no longer see the the tennis ball. Now is there really a tennis ball there? No. The, in this metaphor, the reality you're interacting with is a supercomputer uh, it's with diodes and resistors and electronic voltages and lots of you know, megabytes of software. That's the reality you're interacting with. That, all that hardware causes certain photons to be sprayed to your eye, and when they get sprayed to your eye, you create a tennis ball. But the tennis ball only exists when you look. If I said But the tennis ball is surely there when i don't look because look i can hold up there my friend joe who's playing virtual tennis with me joe can you see it and you go oh yeah i see it the tennis ball is still there does that mean that the the tennis ball really exists because joe sees it no joe's got his headset on and he's creating his tennis ball the tennis ball that joe sees is actually different from the tennis ball that i see because there is no single tennis ball i create a tennis ball and joe creates a tennis ball we're interacting with some reality, which in this metaphor is this supercomputer with all the voltages and magnetic fields. So there is some reality beyond us, but it's not as, you know, what I'm saying is think about VR. If you think about virtual reality and realize that when you take your VR headset off and get out of the metaverse and you look around, I'm claiming you still have a headset on. Evolution gave you a headset. Mm-hmm. You're, you're basically you're, stuck in
0: you're basically just saying that the perceptual experience you're having at one moment is a rendition built from something, but that rendition has essentially uh, there's you can't derive the the something from from the rendition that you're
1: experiencing. It, it, exactly, and from an evolutionary logic, the, the reason is this: you don't need to see the truth to win the game, right? The evolution is about being fit, winning the game. To win, the only point from an evolutionary point of view is outcompeting the others. That's all. So if you don't need to estimate the truth, then why bother? You can just outcompete them. So, so to put it back into the VR game, suppose that I have some really super smart geek with, that can actually look at the electronic voltages in the supercomputer. And so he actually, in this metaphor, he knows the truth. So he can actually toggle the voltages. And so we we compete with him. I'm going to play tennis with him, but he has to toggle voltages really fast to hit the tennis ball, whereas I can just use my my sure. VR headset. Well, he's seeing the truth, but good luck playing the game. I'm going to win him. I'll beat him six love in, in you know a tennis I set. See.
0: That's actually a really good example and. I at least didn't get to the part of the book where if that's in there. So you, you could have the, the the smartest being in the universe who actually can see all of the transistors and stuff inside the computer, knows what state each logic gate needs to be at to, to do the rendition. But if he's got to
1: operate that apparatus at that level of detail, he's simply going that's to right. lose the game. That, that's right. And and another example, just to bring it home and make it, make it seem sort of obvious, suppose you're writing an email. Mm-hmm. Well what you're really doing is toggling voltages in the computer. Mm-hmm. Well good luck if you if you had to toggle voltages in a computer to craft an email your friends wouldn't hear from you. Instead what we have are these nice little icons on our desktop, right? A little eye candy that lets us click on files and open them up and type stuff into them and and close the files. But you know, so we we have this blue icon on your screen for the the email that you're writing, but that doesn't mean the email itself is blue and rectangular and you know, if the if the icon is in the lower right corner of your desktop, it doesn't mean that the the email itself is in the lower right corner of your, your your laptop. So so the whole point is we have a user interface explicitly to hide the truth. The truth is too complicated. You don't need to know the truth. If you had to know the truth, you wouldn't survive. And so we see none of the truth. So okay, so here's here's where maybe I
0: you start to lose me. So I totally I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, it, it's simply too much information for us to handle to understand all of the physical states of all the logic gates inside of a computer. We we literally just couldn't use the computer for anything we use it for if we had to have that level of detailed information. But the iconography that I do interact with on my computer screen here certainly, you know, if if I click on the the mail icon, the the mail icon looks like it's an icon with respect to a, another perception I have, which is a, a physical envelope I might ho- hold in my hand. It's not an icon with respect to the physical state of the underlying machine, but it is a. It is, there's an information compression that has happened, but nonetheless, isn't there still a systematic relationship between the icon and the underlying physical state of the machine, even though
1: the, the output is vastly different? <clears throat> Well, there, there is, so the, the blue icon on your desktop for the email, there is a systematic relationship between that and something going on in the computer. It's very complicated. There's nothing green in your computer that corresponds to it. There's nothing rectangular that corresponds to it. And if the the green icon is in the middle of your screen, it doesn't mean it's in the middle of your computer. So all of the predicates that you would use, your sensory predicates, are the wrong predicates. Mm. To, to talk about how it corresponds with the objective reality. The c- objective reality that it corresponds to is really this abstract code that's that's coordinating all these, you know, flows of electrons and, mm-hmm. and so forth. That's, it's, it's incredibly complicated what's going on. The, the, the problem with the desktop in terms of making that connection is it's trivial compared to the reality. And that's the same thing I'm saying our, our best science is telling us. Effectively, space-time is trivial. Objects in space-time are trivial. They're a dumbed-down user interface that we have mistaken for the objective reality. We we are we're just we haven't been bright enough to recognize that we've been stuck in a headset and we've assumed that you know what we see is um, what's what's there, space and time and objects in space and time. We're now waking up. What's remarkable is we've been sort of beaten over the head by our own theories. So the so quantum field theory with gravity has beaten the physicists over the head and said to them, wake up, space-time is doomed. And now evolutionary theory is saying the same thing to us. Wake up. Evolutionary pressures would not um, shape you to see the truth. They would shape you to see a user interface that's much, much simpler than whatever the truth might be. So,
0: yeah, so this is what you call the, the interface theory of perception. The idea that, you know, perception isn't, uh, a direct window into reality, whatever exactly that means. It is it is it is a it, it is like a graphical user interface, very much yeah. like a computer screen. Um, but an important point I would like you to briefly comment on, and you're very clear about making this in the book, is that you, you don't take perceptions literally, but you do take them seriously. And so why is that important to emphasize here?
1: Well, very very bright people have responded to what I'm saying by saying, "Look, obviously what Hoffman is saying is 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 ludicrous. If you think that that train coming down the tracks at 200 miles an hour is just a little icon in your virtual reality interface, why don't you step in front of it? And after it's killed you, we'll know that the train was real and it really can kill. And and so and I get I get emails all the time from people who who say." I don't care what you've done. Here, here's the one liner that takes you down, right? You know, things can hurt you. Things, you, if you don't pay attention to them, then you can, be, you can be hurt and so forth. So I get this all the time. And, and I wouldn't step in front of that train for the same reason I wouldn't carelessly drag my file icon, my blue rectangular file icon to the trash can icon. Not because I take the icon literally, my, my file isn't blue and rectangular, but I do take the icon seriously. If I drag that icon to the trash, I could lose a year of work if I'm saying I'm writing a book. So so we're, we have to take our perceptions seriously from an evolutionary point of view. We evolved these perceptions to stay alive. You better take them seriously. If you don't take them seriously, you're the one that won't reproduce. So absolutely, we have to take our perceptions seriously from an evolutionary point of view, but it's a logical error to, to then claim, because I must take them seriously, I'm entitled to take them literally. That's a, that's a logical error. It's, it seems part of the human psyche that we just are inclined to make that logical error. Brilliant people, as well as non-academics who haven't looked at this, um, we're all inclined. I was inclined to do the same thing. We're all inclined to say, because I can stub my toe on that rock, as Johnson said to Barclay. because I can stub my toe on the rock, or because that train could kill me, or because that bee could sting me, it really must be real. Well, yeah, I must take that bee very seriously. I must take the train seriously. I must not kick that rock with without shoes on, of course. But that doesn't mean that I have to take that I get to take my senses literally. That's a logical error. And so, physicalism, which has been the foundation of the current work on consciousness, you know, the neural correlates of consciousness and then studying to try to see how consciousness emerges. That, that whole approach to consciousness is based on a simple, trivial, logical error. And, and in fact, physicalism itself is based on a trivial, logical error. Because we must take our senses seriously, we assume that we are entitled to take them literally. Space and time and physical objects really are the ultimate nature of reality. And in fact, they're a trivial interface and the reality is far more complicated. And science has the tools to step behind the interface and go. So until we get, until, see, physicalism is the biggest impediment now to the progress of science. That's, so physicalism has been the biggest accelerator of science until now. So physical framework was really good for science. But now our theories are telling us physicalism had a good ride. It was very helpful. Time to let that horse go, get off that horse. There's a new horse beyond space-time and beyond objects in space-time. So we need for science to actually start to progress more quickly. We literally have to let go of physicalism and move on to the next phase of science. And consciousness itself will just be one aspect of, you know, the, the neural correlates of consciousness and understanding how uh, conscious experiences, what they are and how they're related to brains, um, will, is, is just part of that whole thing. But physicalism right now is the the biggest it is going to be the biggest obstruction to um, the next phase of of scientific research. So, so there's a number of branch points
0: here. Um, one thing. So one thing I want to summarize is earlier you said you basically said that um, the odds that evolution would have baked in a perceptual apparatus that accurately that actually gave us perceptions that that describe reality as it is is vanishingly small. We didn't we didn't name it, but you were sort of using there something called the fitness beats truth theorem and I don't think we should dwell here on on any of the math or the details at that level. But you also mentioned that you said something like, you know, it's vanishingly unlikely that, you know, what we're perceiving is anything resembling reality as it is at, at a core level, save for one thing? What is What was that one thing that you
1: mentioned? Right. So the world could have many different structures. It could have a notion of neighborhood, like what we call topology, how close are things together. It could have a structure of order, like one is less than two, is less than three, is less than 10, right? That's an order, total order. You could have partial order. Um, there's all all sorts of different structures of metrics and things so there's countless structures you could imagine that reality might have there's only one structure that evolutionary theory in its formulation assumes that that is carried between perception and reality and that's what are called what we we call sigma algebras or sigma additive classes these are, are structures that are required for probability And the reason for this is the reason we need that for for any scientific theory is if the probabilities of events in reality are arbitrarily related to probabilities of events where we can measure them in space and time, then science would not be possible. So for science to be possible, now, now, now it may not be true. I mean, we can't prove that it's true that our sensory systems reserve sigma, sigma algebras or they respect sigma, sigma algebra so the, the technical term is that they're measurable functions so that our sensory systems have measurable functions from the sigma algebras, sigma additive classes in reality to the smaller sigma algebras and smaller sigma additive classes that we use for our perceptions in space and time if if that relationship is arbitrary if, if it was not what we call a homomorphism then science would not be possible so the fact that it's a scientific theory means it's assuming that measurable structures are preserved or, or, or not re, are respected not preserved but respected and but, but any other structure is not required by the theory and so for, so if someone wants to argue that we see that structure they even have they either have to show how evolution in its current framework would automatically evolve systems to see that structure accurately or you know to be homomorphism or they would have to explain um, at a deeper level, a change to evolutionary theory that would add that structure uh, as a part of the theory that would necessarily be preserved. And um, so so the burden really is on those who want to claim that um, evolution preserved these structures. Because here, here's the, the the bottom line. There's a paper we have called Fact, fiction, and fitness. If you know, people just Google my name and fact, fiction, and fitness, you can see the technical work. What we prove is that if you look at the set of all fitness functions, so suppose the, the world has a structure like a, a, a total order: one, two, three, four, five, through ten, something like that. That's a total order, and we and then we have our our payoff, our fitness payoffs, which maybe go from zero to hundred. Zero means you're dead. Hundred means that's the best you could possibly have, and things in between. So you could then ask for all, the, for all the states in the world, for that structure in the world, what are all the fitness payoff functions that are possible? And the only restriction is they have to be measurable, right? They have to be the ones that, that preserve probability. So that's the only constraint on this. Other than that, evol- evolutionary theory gives us no reason to prune any fitness functions out. So you have to look at all the po- possible fitness payoff functions. Then you can ask, OK. Here's the whole set of fitness payoff functions. Then usually it's pretty trivial to write them down. Very easy. Then you can say, which of these payoff functions preserve the total order? Which preserve this partial order? Which preserve a topology? How many of them preserve? And so for any structure, you can ask the technical question, how many of these fitness payoff functions out of of this huge, big, big, big bunch of payoff functions, how many actually contain information about that structure? And in every case you find the answer is probability zero. Probability is zero that the payoff function even has the information. So if you're tuned to the payoff function and it doesn't have the information, good luck. You can't get that information in your sensory system. So that's that's the short answer to it. We can, we can go into more complicated things. You know, I've got pushback, the technical pushback, but that's the big idea. I'll, I'll just summarize it. Payoff functions generically do not have information about structure in the world. So, if sensory systems are tuned to the payoff functions generically, they won't have inform- They won't know the structure of the world because mm-hmm. they can't be tuned to the structure of the world. Just the information is not there in the payoff.
0: Yeah, I think I think I got it. And, and there's a couple ways I want to get at this. First, I want to ask: I, Do you have a hard stop at three PM? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Because because <laughs> we're gonna need more. Um, so, okay, I wanna I wanna start talking about language, and I think this might connect in might connect into to some of the things that you were just saying so language is very interesting at a number of levels obviously we use it as a communication tool obviously it also has adaptive utility for human beings so it has something to do with fitness um it has something to do with perception right because we we have to perceive the speech of each other in order to even have this conversation um so so if we if we're thinking in the context of, of what you call the interface theory of perception. So my conscious perception is uh, it can be analogized to the the com- computer screen I'm looking at here and it's got a bunch of different iconography in it that actually allows me to do stuff in the world fluidly and and adaptively and and be on my way without getting bogged down in the just vast sea of information that would otherwise overwhelm me. So You know, thinking of of computer screens and icons here, the icon Mm -hmm. of the mail, the mailbox, say, it's an icon rather than a symbol in the sense that, right, an icon resembles something and a symbol is arbitrary. So, So the icon on my computer screen for the mailbox actually is an icon of a physical mailbox I might go look at, right? So it's a perceptual icon of another perceptual icon. And so there's this kind of relativity there where the icons are, are essentially defined with respect to other perceptual icons that are sometimes in my experience. That starts to remind me of language, right? When you think about language and what it is and its structure, well, the words that compose languages are defined with respect to other words. And there is some kind of syntax, some logic that tells us how words can be combined and recombined in ways that allow us to communicate. And I'm wondering I'm wondering how you think about language, whether or not there's there's something deeper going on here. does the does the structure and logic of linguistic human language tell us something? Is there some anal- deeper analogy there between that and the structure of Uh, Are perceptions, or is language just sort of a a special case of sensory perception?
1: Um, There's been debate about whether language is unique to humans and and, and so forth, and and I think it's probably not. I I think that there's probably very sophisticated linguistic kinds of systems that other animals have, but we'll we'll see. Um, But it's neither here nor there. From, from our point of view, humans uh, use language as a way of communicating with each other, and we have to play a, a language game. So, so for example, when you have a 15-month-old baby, and you're about to teach it some of its first words, mm-hmm. and so say a mother or a father is with the, with the baby, and there's a rabbit sitting on a, a, a blanket in front of it, and the mother or father points. So Johnny is sitting there, and, and Mom... Points and says rabbit and Johnny looks and if he's old enough he gets it right he, he but if you think about so we're starting to teach the child how to play this language game he sees mom's hand point or dad's hand point he sees the rabbit what, what's really interesting though is this is called ostensive definition so we're teaching by ostensive definition and we do that all the time we don't do it just with with kids I mean, suppose you've never had, you know, you know some some food and you, you go to some South American country and they have some food you've never had before, ceviche or whatever it might be, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and someone gives you some, they, say, they point and say ceviche. And you taste it, you know, whoa, I've never tasted that before, right? And, and, and so that you, you have, again, biased, you've learned ceviche by ostensive definition or whatever. The thing. I mean, we have ceviche here in Southern California, so it's not a big deal. But some food that they have that we wouldn't normally have. So, what's, what, what, if you think about what's going on there, though, it's really difficult. Um, there's When the child looks at the, that whole situation and the mother says, rabbit, well, how does the child know what part of the visual scene mm-hmm. she's referring to? Is it the color, the white color of the rabbit? Is it the left ear? Is it the furriness of the rabbit? Is it maybe the left leg of the rabbit and uh, three square inches of the carpet that it's on. What, what is it? Is it the whiskers of, on the nose? Or is it the fact that it has only four legs? So, so the child has an infinite range of hypotheses that it could possibly have about what mom means by rabbit. And we actually know if, if mom uh, takes you know, 15-month-old Johnny and points and says quadruped, we know that mommy is doing something really disturbingly wrong. You shouldn't, you shouldn't say mammal or quadruped. You should say, you know, rabbit. And you shouldn't say what the, what the particular species of rabbit is, you know, whatever the particular kind, you know, cottontail. You should just say rabbit. So there's, we have built into us. Without being given a university course, mom knows, don't say quadruped, don't say mammal, don't say Peter Cottontail say rabbit and the child knows what's remarkable is the child knows to only look for what we call the basic level object so so language is really complicated we we have to have sort of a shared assumption about our user interface and then as we start to talk we have to have shared assumptions about what part of that user interface you're directing my attention to so that i know what the word means so this is a non-trivial thing. The, the language game is very, very non-trivial. This, this problem of ostensive definition arises everywhere. And and so it's a non-trivial fact that we can learn to coordinate, or at least we think that we're coordinating. Sometimes when you spend a lot of time with a person, you thought you understood them, and then you find out later on, oh, no, there was something very, very deeply wrong in my understanding of that person's world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. so another, there's a couple things here
0: that i think will be interesting to get into so one you know you're describing the sort of view of perception as you know perceptions about perceiving or experiences about perceiving fitness payoffs or fitness potential in the environment rather than you know reality per se in the traditional sense of the term connecting it with language perception here i'm wondering if this is an interesting example that maybe helps illustrate at least a part of what you're saying so we quickly learn as infants to perceive some and to stop perceiving other phonemes. So the, right. the, one, the one example I can name for people is you know in English, obviously we have R and L, the R and L sounds, and we need to distinguish those to, to understand and to use English, but that's not the case in Japanese. So a Japanese infant right. is born, just like all infants, a bit with the ability to distinguish all of the different sound waves that correspond to the phonemes of all the languages. And yet within just a year or two, I think the the Japanese infant will become untuned or unable to discriminate the R and the L syllables. And that's why a Japanese person speaking English that they learn late in life has a a certain accent and and vice versa. So literally, literally, someone learns not to perceive two different states of reality, two different sets of sound waves. Because in that language, it's not useful. And therefore, it doesn't tell them anything about the fitness that they're like, anything about the fitness they're going to experience in their environment, at least. Is exactly that, right. is, is that. Uh, an, yeah, I was getting at this idea. Way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That, that's, that's a pointer that, that we um, ignore. What you see there is that we're perceptually being trained to ignore things that don't affect our fit, that don't enhance our fitness. Mm, yeah. Right. So now that most of my colleagues would say, of course, that just means that we're only seeing those aspects of the truth that we need, not the aspects of the truth that we don't need. So that wouldn't go. So I'm saying something that goes a little bit further. I'm saying that we don't need to see any of the truth except measurable structures. That's it. Right. That's the only structure that needs to be preserved according to evolutionary theory and the rest of it. um, We don't need to see any truth.
0: And, And if, if I've heard everything that you said for the last few minutes correctly, what so what you're saying is we don't need to see any of the truth but what you're not saying correct me if i'm wrong is that there is no systematic relationship between our percepts and some underlying physical reality you're not saying that there's there's sort of an arbitrariness to that you're just saying that nothing about the things that we can label and talk about in terms of our perceptions allows one to deduce the underlying uh physical state of the universe that's responsible for those things
1: Exactly right. When I see that yellow tennis ball in the virtual reality, all the predicates, fuzzy, yellow, round, if I try to use those and say how, okay, so the reality must have some fuzziness or yellowness around us, those are just the wrong predicates to describe what's going on. So you have to literally let go of those predicates completely. Mm -hmm. So, So another thing I want to connect
0: into here is, so I understand the argument you just made. It makes it's, it's internally consistent to me. I, I recognize what you're saying as, as valid um, on its own terms. Now, you're, I believe, still faced with the so-called hard problem of consciousness. You, you still have to uh, bridge that gap mm-hmm. somehow if you're interested in answering that question. Someone else that I just spoke to on the podcast named Bernardo Castro would say <laughs> that the the mistake you're making or the, the difference in his viewpoint from yours, if I'm understanding correctly, is that the qualitative aspects of experience are the things that are there, um, and so the the hard problem of consciousness dissolves in that way. It sounds like what you're saying is, you now there is this other physical reality, but we just can't sort of derive it from the aspects of experience that that we can describe using language. Am, am I missing something there, or how would you start to think about that?
1: Actually, um, I'm good friends with Bernardo, and on this, we we agree. So let me explain why we completely agree. Mm -hmm. So I've been um, just taking our best physicalist theories, namely evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory, and saying what they entail. That's what we do in science. Our theories entail that reality, whatever it is, is entirely unlike anything that we perceive. Space-time is doomed. That's what so that's what our best science tells us so now but that our theories do not tell us what is beyond space-time those theories just tell us you there's something beyond space-time i can't tell you what it is but we do know that whatever that thing is beyond space-time if we project it back into space-time it better look like quantum field theory it better look like evolution by natural selection because those things work within our space-time framework. There are really good theories within our framework. Our, what they're just telling us is that framework stops and there's something beyond. You need a, so you need some new good ideas of what's beyond there. Whatever those new good ideas are, they're not, you, you can't just smoke anything you want to and make any story you want. It, it better be mathematically precise and it better project into space-time in precise ways that gives us quantum field theory or something better inside space-time and evolution by natural selection, or an enhancement of evolution by natural selection. So, so we're free now, as scientists, to posit whatever we want to outside. We can, in fact, we can smoke whatever we want to while we're figuring it out. Might as well be creative. But when we've, when we've made our creative move, now we've got to be rigorous, turn it into math, and project it back and see if it works. So, I'm proposing that we take conscious experiences themselves as the nature of fundamental reality. So conscious agents, something I call conscious agents and their conscious experiences as the fundamental reality. So it flips everything around. Instead of taking inanimate matter, inanimate space and time and inanimate inanimate physical objects like protons and electrons and so forth as the fundamental reality, I'm taking something beyond space time to be um, what I'll call these entities called conscious agents. Not necessarily human, not by a long shot, an infinite variety. Potentially infinite variety of conscious agents with experiences utterly unlike anything I've ever imagined. This is the, so. So we just have to posit this realm of of uh, potentially unbounded variety of conscious experiences and agents having those experiences. We have to propose a dynamics. So I think you know, I mean Bernardo and I are good friends. We've talked many many times in person and, and remotely. And he's an idealist, and and this is an idealist theory that I'm proposing. But the the, the difference is, and you know, I, you know, I like to work with Bruno on this. Uh, he's got the mathematical chops to do this. Is I mean, he's doing it philosophically, but ultimately as a scientist, I want to do it mathematically because I would like to get mathematical theories that that we can then project into space time and show how we get um, quantum field theory and so forth coming out of it, and evolution by natural selection. So so I take um, and and again um. I could be wrong, and in fact, I'll put it this way: that I don't think any scientific theory to date um, will be viewed as the truth in a hundred years. It'll be viewed as it was really good for then; it was a good building block, and we found something better. And I think that that's going to always happen in science. There's never going to be a final theory of everything, in principle, because every scientific theory starts with certain assumptions. And it says, if you grant me these assumptions, then I can explain all this other stuff. But those assumptions aren't explained. They're the miracles of the theory. And if you say, well, I'll I'll get a deeper theory that explains those assumptions, great. That new theory has its own new assumptions. And so you'll have your new set of miracles. And this is a principled aspect of scientific explanation, that there can be no final theory of everything. And so what i'm proposing is a hypothetical next theory but not by any means in my view the final theory just here's a interesting next step in the evolution of scientific theories let's try a theory in which we have these things called conscious agents with their conscious experiences let's work on the dynamics of this let's project it back into space-time and see if we can get something that looks like evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory if so that doesn't mean, oh, we've arrived. It just means, oh, we've taken the next baby step in our science.
0: Okay, so there's a number of things I want to talk about. Um, basically, so maybe to, to help people think about some of this stuff, which, which can get fairly abstract. So uh, many people have heard of Plato's allegory of the cave, right? So, mm-hmm. so these You know, hypothetical people are are in a cave, they're chained to the wall. All they can see are shadows being projected by a fire that's lit somewhere. And, you know, maybe there's people walking around in the cave and there's stuff in the cave, but all they can really see are the shadows of those things. And um, I think someone like you or Bernardo would say our perception is sort of like that. We're only seeing the shadows, we're only seeing this sort of gooey graphical user interface. We're not seeing the stuff from which those shadows are coming. And I think what you're saying is, you know, the, the actual descriptor of reality is going to be some higher dimensional structure, um, and in order to define what that structure could be, we need to we need to just hypothesize. We need to make up some ideas of what that structure could be. But no matter what we come up with, it should be. Um, dimensionally reducible to, to the shadows of perception, so to speak. We ought to be able to recover all the things that we observe in our conscious perspe- perception with whatever it is this structure is that, that you would use to replace the notion of space-time.
1: Is that- I, I, I agree. So we're, we're free to be as um, creative and irresponsible as we wish as we're trying to come up with ideas. But eventually we have to get responsible and then say, okay, I'm proposing that this is beyond space-time, these conscious agents, and I've got to make a mathematically precise description of it and its dynamics and a projection, a, a, like you said, a projection into space-time and it, so we can measure and see if it matches with what we can observe here. The, the only difference I would say between what I'm saying and, and Plato's allegory of the key, so I agree with everything you said about that. It's, it's perfectly fine. I would just say one little difference. The shadows do resemble the objects. Hmm. They have a similar shape so we actually whereas in the virtual reality example that yellow fuzzy tennis ball does not resemble in any way anything inside the supercomputer and that's why i mean i think plato if he were here would say yeah that's a better allegory i mean i didn't have virtual reality so i had to use what i could what i could use for to to make this so i think if you think about virtual reality and i think what i'm saying well to the next generation that spends much of their life in the metaverse what i'm what i'm saying is just going to be just plain obvious i mean our generation is not obvious but the next generation they're going to look back on these videos and go what he was saying was news that's silly i mean i take off my headset of course what i'm seeing around is probably another virtual reality and this is just another headset i think it'll just be obvious so i, I think our technology the, the metaverse will really just have help people see this and realize that there's the fuzziness of the tennis ball and the color has nothing to do with the reality behind it that, that, um, that's causing me to see a tennis ball.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, another thing I would love to
0: ask you about too is, so you're saying, you're saying that there's no requirement that our perceptions look like reality. And in fact, it's vanishingly unlikely that any one of them will. Of course, it should still be a formal possibility that at least some tiny percentage of those perceptions might resemble as an icon does, um, something about reality. And again, to use language as an example, um, our our language, our words, are mostly symbolic in the sense that the small mouth noises we make have uh, no no logical correspondence to what they represent. And that's mostly true, but it's not universally true, right? We have certain words that are iconographic, certain phonemes and phrases and things that resemble either the 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 actual like physical sound wave patterns that that the that the sounds um, come from or they they do have some kind of iconographic rep uh, relationship to to the referent in the world but once you have just a small number of those you can bootstrap language very quickly and start to use words that are truly arbitrary and then that's most of what the language is so thinking roughly in those terms i guess my question for you is you know even if we've Fully buy into to your idea that our perceptions don't match up with what reality actually looks like. Might there be some uh, some perceptual seeds, some some tiny percentage of our perceptions that actually do have that kind of correspondence?
1: Um, well, the evolutionary theory says that the the answer um, is vanishingly small and precisely zero in the limit as we let the number of states go arbitrarily large. So it gets arbitrarily close to zero. Now it is possible, but but I would say another thing. Evolutionary theory makes it very clear that that no connection with the truth is needed for the sensory system to do their job. Just it's just not needed. The the jewel beetle doesn't need to know what a female is. And you know if, if he happens to you know, get hung up on bottles. The species may disappear, but but the chance of someone throwing out, out a bottle is very very low. It only happened. It didn't happen for a million years, and all of a sudden, some some Australian guys threw them out. And, and so, bye bye to the beetle. But you know, it's, but in generally, the the sensory systems just don't need to correspond to the truth at all, except that probabilities and perception have to correspond to probabilities of events in reality. But other than that, there needs to be no resemblance whatsoever.
0: I see. So, so it's really the, the only formal requirement here is this um, probabilistic correspondence but, but right. absolutely nothing else.
1: That's right. So the probabilities of me seeing a green fuzzy ball are related to some really complicated probabilities of billions of interactions of electrons and diodes and resistors, right? So It's, it's that kind of thing. I just see this, this stupid fuzzy tennis ball. What's really going on there are probabilistic events that are unbelievably complicated. So there is the correspondence, but but it's like billions to one is the correspondence in, in terms of probability, and the the language of you know the, the fuzziness and the color of the ball are just irrelevant to the description of what's going on in, in the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just
0: maybe one last area in, on the topic of language that I want to riff on for a minute is you know everyone will understand intuitively how. I mean, language is powerful. Language is very useful. It's often fairly precise, but there's a lot of ambiguity in language. And there's a hell of a lot in our experience that is nearly impossible for anyone to put words to. Um, Just think about how hard it is to describe your emotions to someone else who also seems to feel those emotions, let alone your example from earlier, Donald, of trying to describe a a visual percept of color to a blind person. And Hmm. I'm wondering if the way to start to think about this is again in terms of thinking of language in terms of fitness payoffs rather than reality. So, so naively, if you ask someone, you know, what is language all about? Say, so, well, it's it's a communication um, strategy we use. And you know, if you think about all the different languages that exist and that will exist and that will evolve, you know, the ones you might say that the you know the ones that are going to do best are the ones that are the best at describing what's going on out in the world the best, but. I wonder if that's not the way that you would think about language evolution.
1: Well, there's been some beautiful work by some friends of mine on this. So Kimberly Jameson, Lewis Narens, and Natalia Komarova at the University of California, Irvine. They looked at um, colors on the on the color circle and getting people to come to agreement on, on names for colors, and they. So they play, so this is now sort of a game theoretic kind of thing. So you use a game theory analysis of this, and you have people start making arbitrary carvings up of the color wheel, the color circle, and, and then they, they have to sort of converge on what they mean by the colors, and, and it turns out you can learn to, groups of people can learn to evolve toward the same shared boundaries on the colors in their language. What um, what they found in one simulation, in one study, not simulation, actually experiment with with, with people, when they had trichromats, people who have you know three color receptors, red, um, blue and green. Green. Um, the, the, we couldn't, we shouldn't really call them red, blue and green, red, green and blue. Yeah, but anyway, but but the three the, the three receptors, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, they're long, medium, and short wavelength um, photoreceptors. So so when they have trichromats, just trichromats doing this, they get one result. But when you have dichromats, people who are colorblind, they're, they're missing, say, the blue cones or something like that. It turns out that the dichromats have a, a bigger influence than the rest on the final color boundaries that are perceived. And that makes sense because you have to play the language game such that, the, that you include the people that have the, the, the worst perceptual understanding. So really, really that, quite is, interesting.
0: that is very interesting um, for a number of reasons, right. including that I am red, green, colorblind. And so I oh, yeah. I, I know from direct yeah. experience, how it's, I, and this just gets back, to, gets back to the difficulty and the ambiguity in language. It is so hard for me to describe for people what this is like and for me to imagine what it's like for them. But I can sort of tell or surmise, and, and I also just know intellectually this is this is what's going on, that you know, oftentimes when I see something and someone asks me what color it is, or, or the colors needs to come up in my speech, I probably can't tell if it's more red or more green. But I, I literally just kind of guess. I think, and I right. want you to repeat what you said. So you said that the people with the perceptual deficit, someone like me in this case, who's colorblind, right. have an outsized influence on the boundaries and the concepts right. that people construct about where things are. That's right. In other words, the people with the deficits are leading the people who actually see, see things more cleanly, I guess?
1: That, that, that's right, so that, that, that they can communicate, so that, that, that communication was possible. Because otherwise, we'd leave that person out. If, if we force them to see all the color boundaries that we see in the language, they, they couldn't use them as well. So it was, it's an interesting, again, that's just one, one, one simulation. But I'll, I'll just mention another interesting thing in the same direction. Kimberly Jamieson is one of the people who's really um, taken the lead on this, studying people, uh, women, who have four color receptors. So mm-hmm. they have the long, medium, and short wavelength photoreceptors, but they also have another one, typically uh, another version of the long wavelength. And so they have four color receptors, and, and they're, so they're called tetrachromats. They, instead of trichromats, they're tetrachromats. And she's done careful experiments that, that strongly suggest that they have a richer, Color experience than the rest of us, trichromats, and certainly dichromats. So it's not just they have one new color, they have a whole new dimension of color that the rest of us can't even imagine. If I ask you to imagine a new color you've never seen before, right? Right. Try real hard. Imagine a color you've never seen before. Nothing happens. These women, and I think there are various estimates, it might be 1% of the population that might have this, or or, or, of the women that have this. These women are seeing colors on a daily basis that you and i can't even imagine Hmm. so so again we we have to we play a language game they have to play the language game so that um they can talk with us so language works for us but the tetra tetrachromats see things that um, transcend the language that you and i have i see so they have an extra dimension
0: of colors. it's not like they see a few just more reds or a few more blues. It's these. Right. It's these things that we can't even imagine. So on. Sure. So this reminds me of, of another topic I wanted to ask you about, which is um, psychedelic experiences, which which have become you know very widely discussed recently for different reasons. Now, when people have a high dose psychedelic experience on something like psilocybin or DMT, they say a number of things that are very interesting, and I'm wondering if you can comment on these for us. One, they might say things almost like what you were just describing, like, "Well, I saw colors." That I didn't even know were colors. I saw, I perceived things that not only I hadn't perceived before, but that I didn't know were even available kinds of things to be perceived. They'll say things like, um, "Well, it's also very hard to talk about, right?" It's. They'll say things like, "I can't describe it. I can't put it in words. It seems to be very hard to encode in memory. It, it sort of slips slips away very quickly based on the." perceptual weirdness of the experience. And finally, the, you know, the other thing that I think they say that's interesting to get mm-hmm. your take on is they'll say things like there was a sense that things were more real than real. And so in right. the context of your ideas around perceptions not reflecting reality, when we think about something like a high dose psychedelic experience where people have these completely sort of new and alien perceptual experiences, what, How would you, as a cognitive scientist, think about what's actually going on there to create those experiences?
1: Well, first I'll say what my physicalist colleagues would say. So if if I'm a hard-nosed physicalist and I'm a neurobiological reductionist, so I'm I'm saying that the the brain is fundamental reality and it's only brain activity that causes my experiences, then then these people that are on psychedelic drugs and getting these different kinds of experiences – they're not perceiving any new fundamental nature of reality. Their brains are just being addled. There's 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 just nothing more to say about it. That, I mean, in terms of depth, depth of reality, you might get personal insights out of it, emotional insights and so forth. But the the visual objects that you're seeing and the new colors you're seeing are not insights into a new deeper reality. Your, your brain is just being fooled with. Now, in the framework that I'm working on, in which space time is doomed physical objects in space-time are not fundamental. And, and therefore, in fact, they only exist when they're perceived, right? So, so I'm saying, I don't have a brain right now. If you looked inside my skull, you would see a brain because you're creating the brain. Just like if I, in, in the VR with the tennis ball, um, there is no tennis ball until I look. When I look, there's a tennis ball. It exists in the act of looking. As soon as I turn away, that tennis ball is gone. It, it's nowhere. There is a reality, but it's not a tennis ball. Right, that's the supercomputer. So there is no. So I want to be very clear about what I'm saying. I have no brain right now. There are no neurons in me. If you looked at me, you would. I would absolutely predict that you would see neurons, absolutely. But that doesn't mean the neurons are there when you don't look. That just means, like the tennis ball, I create the tennis ball when I need it. I delete it when I don't. When you look inside brains, you create inside heads. You create the brains. That's the way we create what we're seeing. Just like we create the VR tennis ball, we create neurons, we create that whole story. And as soon as we look away, that is gone. Our story. There's some deeper reality, and we have to recognize we just got this little tiny projection of a little tiny story, and we mistake it for the reality. It's a it's a rookie, freshman, sophomore mistake. Right. We have to get over that. That's that's why I'm saying this is the biggest obstacle to the advancement of science. Now is this physicalist. Sophomoric mistake. Our perceptions are just our perceptions; they're not an insight into reality. Once we get used to that, we can make the next step beyond. So, no, I guess I'll stop on that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, so how, how would you start to think about so? So, when someone has a high dose psychedelic yeah. experience, say they they uh, based on their reports, it would appear that they encounter qualia; that they have percepts that they've never encountered before and that are potentially like like your tetrachromatic female example that that some women have this extra dimension of color perception that people claim that there's these other dimensions of perception whether it's colors or, or shapes or topologies or whatever that simply never enter into entered into their conscious awareness prior to having that experience so how would you think about what what those percepts actually are and what they're what they're reflecting
1: well, yeah, so my, my colleagues, as I said, have one answer, and, and, it's, and it's fixed. There's nothing beyond space-time. So if they, if they think they're seeing dimensions beyond space-time, they're wrong. But in this other framework that I'm talking about in which space-time is doomed and in which I, I'm proposing a theory in which conscious agents are fundamental and there's an infinite variety of experiences that are far beyond anything we've experienced, it opens the possibility that the experiences that people have on drugs um could be new portals into this realm of conscious agents and new portals into new kinds of experiences it doesn't entail that that's the case it allows that that's the case so what we have to do as responsible scientists is to develop this theory of conscious agents and its projection into what we call our brain and the nervous system we have to see how the default mode network and area v4 and all these different structures of the brain and their activity are um, a projection of this deeper dynamics of conscious agents we then have to model what what five Meo DMT is doing to neurotransmitter systems in the in the in the nervous system of the brain do a, a pullback from that into this theory of conscious agents to say what we think that corresponds to in the theory of conscious agents and then we can try in that that context to say uh, that is possibly a real new insight into a new dimension of conscious agents that we never had before or no that was really just like the drug did a hardware error and and you got a bug from it right so we, we we don't know which is but at least the theory of conscious agents leaves open the possibility that drug experiences in some cases could be insights it also leaves open the possibility that they're just errors the cause they're causing malfunctions and so forth so so we'll see, whereas the physicalist framework there is nothing beyond space time um, and so there's no insights that you could be having that go beyond normal space time
0: so um you know when we use some of these philosophical terms like physicalism or idealism and things like this, or naturalism or 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 other things. How would you so if, so if your way of thinking about things is not physicalist, but most scientists would be considered physicalist, uh, and a, a presumption that many people would make or a concern they might have is, well, if, if Donald is not a physicalist, there must be some kind of airy fairy or quasi-religious metaphysics that's being smuggled into this. Is that accurate? or can you is it fair to say that your viewpoint is completely naturalistic even though it's not physicalist?
1: Yeah, I view this as completely naturalistic. I'm just saying our best theories tell us that space-time is doomed. As a scientist, I have to accept what my best theories tell me and try to come up with a deeper theory. I have to come up with it's in the the best interests of science as a natural scientist to say, okay, space-time isn't fundamental. I, I I was wrong. I thought it was fundamental. I thought that electrons and protons and quarks and gluons were fundamental. They're not okay well i can cry over it for a few weeks and now now let's now i'm over it now let's go on and find out what's a deeper theory and i I, it's going to still be the normal science in the in the sense that um, whatever i propose out there it better project back into space and time and give me back the scientific theories that we know and love and better give me back you know empirically verifiable experiments to test to test my theory so it's entirely naturalistic in the sense that um I, for every entity that I propose, I'm going to be proposing it a mathematical dynamics and proposing experiments that we can go to test it. Um, And also, even before we get there, showing how I can get all of our current scientific theories as a projection of this deeper theory, right? So I'll just give you just a one hint about the kind of thing that we'll have to do. So time, right? Our universe, our physical space-time universe, seems to have a very finite time. It started 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang. Um, and there's this entropic time. Entropy keeps increasing, and time time increases, and it seems like they're very intimately linked, that in some sense our time is a measure of entropy in some, in, in some sense. Um, and in this theory of conscious agents, now we have a, a mathematical model in which you have I haven't gone into the mathematical model at all, but I'll just say that that we have these spaces of possible experiences, so the probability spaces that of possible experiences, and agents can have experiences and then can affect the experiences of other agents. Um, as it's, I don't know if I want to go all the way there, so I'm, I'm, I'm halting here, but maybe I'll want to just say that, that we can then Take that and we can have a notion of a dynamics in this. So I'll just say briefly, a, a dynamics of conscious agents, but it need not have an increasing entropy. We can have, for example, something called a Markovian dynamics that's that's stationary. So we can have this dynamical system of conscious agents. It's a big dynamics, really complicated, but it's stationary. So there's there the entropy does not increase with the time parameter, the, the step parameter of that dynamics. But it's it's easy to show trivial proof that if you have this Markovian dynamics that has no entropic time, if you take any projection of it, like by conditional probability, so you look at it from a perspective, any projection from a particular perspective, you will induce entropy, increasing entropy.
0: I see. So what you're saying. So you get time. I see. So what you're saying is, if I'm understanding correctly, there are certain dynamical systems that one can construct with properties right. such that there's no entropy, there's no uh, disorder that, no, no, that increasing no, no increasing entropy. entropy. No increasing entropy. No increasing entropy over time, like, like what we see in our, the physical universe that we're perceiving right, right now. But if you take any lower dimensional slice of that, if you look at a shadow of
1: that system, it will in all cases give you just that. It'll give you all of a sudden now the entropy is increasing with your, with your, and so you get this entropic time. So, so who knows? In this realm of conscious agents, um, there may not be any entropic time. And, and so, but like time is one of our most important limiting resources right now, right? Right. Time is one of the most valuable resources that we have. We compete over because of time, time limits. So, this, this world of the conscious agents, the whole notion of of competition may not be there because the the resource of time isn't isn't a a problem so but when we look at the dynamics and project it into space time all of a sudden we're going to get this artificial time this entropic time is an artifact of the projection and so maybe evolution by natural selection will be the artifact Way of looking at our dynamics that you and I are, are, appear to be competing for finite resources, and that's just a limited projection perspective of a deeper dynamics in which it's not true that we're competing for resources, and there is no entropic time. So, so as much as I've touted the the glories of evolutionary psychology and, and evolution of a natural selection, it may be that that whole theory is is really. Re- Revealed as an artifact of the projection of a deeper dynamics in which there is no competition. We're not competing for resources and the whole bit. We'll see.
0: Interesting. Well, it sounds like, Donald, that you're um, are are you still actively doing research or running a lab? It sounds like maybe you're not.
1: Uh, I'm actively collaborating. Uh, I I no longer am working with graduate students, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm working with with um, postdocs and um, several um, professors. So we're, we're continuing to work and we're interacting. For example, there's a, a lab at Yale University that um, recently sent us a paper, some simulations they are doing this, trying to contradict our work on evolution of natural selection and not seeing the truth. So we're, we're writing a paper in response and so forth. So, so a lot of good work is going on, but, but the work I'm planning to really focus on um, I, I was waylaid for a little bit with COVID. So for the last year, I, basically I had long COVID and it took out my heart and I had to have surgery. And so this last year was pretty much a loss because of COVID. Um, but but now I'm getting back into working on this dynamics of conscious agents and trying to um, build a model of it and show how, what I'm hoping to do is to show how the, the so-called asymptotic behavior, the long-term behavior of these conscious agents, um, gives rise to structures that the physicists are finding, like the cosmological polytope and the amplituhedron. If I can do that, then they take me from the cosmological polytope and the amplituhedron into space-time. And so I could go all the way from the dynamics of conscious agents through one projection, namely the the long-term behavior, the asymptotic behavior is a kind of projection of the dynamics. Instead of seeing the whole dynamics, you only see it in the long-term behavior. So that's a projection. So that projection gives rise to the structures that the physicists find behind space-time, like the cosmological polytope. That's my hope. And then we can go from there into space-time. So it's a big project, but the idea would eventually start with dynamics of conscious agents, go through its asymptotics, through cosmological polytope and amplituhedron into space-time, and then make predictions that we can test. That's the goal. And then I'll have lunch.
0: (laughs) Um well Donald this is all very interesting stuff. Um I enjoyed reading your book even though I didn't get all the way through it by the time that we spoke today. Um do you want to tell everyone um like the name of your book or name of any other books that you have and where they can find you?
1: Sure. Um you can my my most recent book on this is called The Case Against Reality. The Case Against Reality and then the subtitle is uh, why evolution hid the truth from our eyes. And so that came out in 2019. Um <clears throat> I have a book called Visual Intelligence, How We Create What We See. So this goes through in in great detail about how you create the colors and objects and shapes that you see. Um, It's it's great. It's been used as a textbook for photography and art classes and so forth, but also for for cognitive neuroscience classes. Um, And then uh, for those who want some real nasty math, I have a book um, with Bruce Bennett and Chaitan Prakash called Observer Mechanics which goes into an earlier version of this conscious agent theory, uh, the dynamics of it. So it's called observer mechanics, a formal theory of perception. And I've got a TED talk, if people are interested, I've got a TED talk, if you just Google my name and and TED talk, you can see where I've talked about these ideas um, for a very broad audience and, and sort of compacted them all down into only 18 minutes, so.
0: All right, well, Professor Donald Hoffman, thank you for joining me.
1: My pleasure, thank you very much.